you are being watched. The government has a secret system, a podcast that recounts every episode of Person of Interest. I know, because we made it. We designed the podcast to continue our bullshit, but we see everything. Random numbers of the week. People like you. Episodes the average viewer deems irrelevant. You wouldn't watch it, so we did. But I needed partners. Someone who had never watched this before. Hunted by weirdos on the internet, we record in secret. We will never find them. But, newbie or diehard, if your episode's up, we will find you. Hello, and welcome to the library for Podcast of Interest. This is a rewatch podcast for Person of Interest, uh, featuring two veteran operatives and one newly initiated. My name is Justin, and joining me are my two associates, uh, my veteran operative Jude, and our new recruit, Anna, who is presently being pursued by government helicopters. Jude, <laughs> Anna, how you doing? Well, not as good as Anna, apparently. No helicopters are pursuing me. Um... And unfortunately, unfortunately, it's it's night, so I wasn't able to like look up through the through the skylight and see the number of helicopters. It just sounded like it was just but because a, a it was lot. night. These were black unmarked government helicopters. Yes, so, okay. because because I get those flying over my house. Yeah, skeptical. Look. We, Not skeptical. We, we, think of where I live, June. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I get I get the I get the like. The sets of three helicopters flying flying over the house. Yeah, that'll do it. I'm good. Um, I have the the endless entertainment of Twitter burning down to keep me entertained. And when that gets boring, uh, I have Tactics Ogre and the new Pokemon and the last race of the F1 season. So I am fucking stacked this weekend with things to do. <laughs> this weekend, I have very big plans to clean my house. I'm attending King of Indies in San Francisco this weekend, which is going to be fun. And then uh, Thanksgiving. So um, <laughs> I guess that's a, let's do that as an introductory question. Um, what is your favorite Thanksgiving dish? Stuffing. Yeah. Well, dressing. Say. Dressing. Because it because it is cooked outside of the bird. Would you like to would you like to say something, June? Stuffing is superior to dressing. Because it has marinated in the flavor of the bird. And the superior, the best way to eat Thanksgiving is it's, to take everything that is served besides the turkey, which is just really a vehicle for the stuffing, in a bowl and just sort of like throw it into a bowl like a horse at a trough and then just go to town. <laughs> you can put turkey in there if you want, but it's entirely optional. Stuffing, sweet potatoes, mashed potatoes, gravy, cranberry. All of it, and just... Have I dropped my hottest take about Thanksgiving? Go to town. What's your What's your hot take, Justin? That turkey is a shit bird? This is not a hot take. This is this, yeah. this takes colder than my turkey leftovers that never get eaten, because turkey... Okay. Turkey is a, is a traditional bird. It's more... I mean, they're, like, the thing is that, like, I prefer turkey leftovers to cook turkey. Mm-hmm. Or to, like, to, like tur- fresh turkey. Yeah, no, that's valid. Yeah. I like I'll, I'll like I will eat a half dozen like Hawaiian roll turkey sandwiches in mm, one yeah. sitting before like I will like you know it's like I'll, I'll like just you know slap a little bit of mustard between like those and just pop it in and like I'll I'll eat as many of those I will say that like 
My stepfather does an excellent smoked turkey, but most people just yeah. I yeah. even that is like pushing it. I I I'm very happy that my other side of the family, it's like we do salmon for Thanksgiving, and that's mm. excellent yeah. and probably more historically accurate. Traditional, but really not that exciting. Turkey gravy, though. Turkey gravy is pretty dope. Uh, and again, Gravy's turkey has a capacious cavity into which you can jam a bunch of stuffing. And get salmonella. It's flavor. Builds character. <laughs> Does it, though? Does it, though? I Yeah, I, I agree uh, that I... Look upon the, the character-filled individual sitting before you. <laughs> I have nothing if not a great deal of character. I believe we would all agree. And, and a decent beard. We're a crooked not beard wrong. tonight, but I don't know what's going on with it. It's like hanging to one side for some reason tonight. The beard, the beard. Uh, let's <laughs> let's move on. Uh, we're doing two episodes tonight. We're only recording one episode, and so that's why we're a little loopy because it's you know a little punchy. Yeah, because we're not we're not on the clock the way that we usually are. Yeah. yeah. So this week we are um, covering two episodes, eleven and twelve of season three, uh, Lethe and Alethea. Arguably, this is like one long episode that they just decided to cut in half. Yeah, it's yeah. a two parter. Yeah. 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 I've I have uh, the first one, so I will take it away. Uh, as a season three episode eleven, Lethe, written by Eric Mountain, directed by Richard J. Lewis. Our number this week is Arthur Claypool, a cancer patient with a brain tumor who is currently experiencing some cognitive issues, including uh, memory loss and not quite knowing where he is sometimes. Shaw goes undercover as a doctor at the hospital that Claypool is receiving treatment at, as John is MIA. John's out in Colorado getting into bars and fighting with Fusco in the rain. We don't really... He's there. He exists. He's not really doing much in this episode. Shaw, he like he's having character growth, but he is feeling very bad after after Carter's death, and he's like hit like peak nihilism. He's mostly just drinking. Yeah, I feel like it's not so much nihilism as like manalism. Yeah. Um. So back at the hospital, Shaw finds that Claypool is being guarded by Secret Service agents, as Arthur used to work for the NSA. It turns out that Vigilance is interested in Arthur, trying to discern the location of something, uh, while an agent of theirs is posing as a radiological tech. Root gets found out by the Secret Service, but someone, Vigilance, poisons the Secret Service's takeout, and Vigilant comes to try to abduct Arthur. Arthur refuses to go with Shaw and his wife, Diane, who Arthur does not recognize his wife until... Harold shows up, and it's revealed that Arthur and Harold are old MIT buddies, and Arthur goes with them. Uh, They escape from vigilance and head to a safe house, where Arthur reveals to Harold that his work for the NSA was creating a system to detect acts of terrorism, a second machine, which he calls Samaritan. Dun, dun, dun. As it turns out, Samaritan is what everyone is after, including... Diane, who is not Diane, the real Diane is dead, um, but a figure named Control, who is Shaw's former boss. A strike team led by the O-Terminator shows up, and Control (laughs) demands to know where Samaritan is, or she'll take Harold's machine as consolation. Our flashbacks in this episode are of a young Harold, who is shown to be an incredibly gifted child who helps his father, uh, who suffers from a similar failing memory as Arthur. The young Harold is driven by the idea of making a thinking machine to help his father keep his memories. 
man, what a fucking episode. Yeah. So let's, I mean, the first thing is, is that we have, we have some depression related stuff uh, of how everybody in the team deals with failure. Shaw just wants to work more. Harold is refusing to, uh, to listen to the numbers and John fucks off to the Rockies. Yeah. yeah. John's being a cliche. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a, what a start to this kind of new arc. John is, you know, entirely across the, or ha- you know, most of the way across the country and Harold isn't picking up the machine's calls. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty re- crazy. I love the casting <laughs> in this episode though. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's Arthur, so who's played by uh, Saul Rubinek, is he he takes the episode from like it's a, it's a momentous plot wise episode, but um, the immediate rapport that Saul Rubinek and uh, Michael Emerson have is so delightful. It's yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, they're they're great together, and and he sell he sells the like you know fading the like intelligent person with the fading memory really really well mm-hmm. yeah which is i think something that has to be done delicately and i think they do it pretty well yeah and the twist of diane's dad this is fake diane uh is honestly it works really well in this episode it is like well that's so that's yeah. the question i wanted to ask and talk to anna about i guess it but i guess it like literally two minutes before the reveal i was in i was curious about that because I remember watching it and I knew that this actress was too big for this role, but I also was like, but she hasn't done a whole lot lately. And this guy's, you know, he's doing a bit part in this episode and he's been on stuff. He was on that weird warehouse show. Like weird warehouse show. How dare you? I'm quoting my younger self and I'm just like, so like maybe this is just an important episode. So they really like pulled out the stops to get the like the good actors, uh, and then there's just that turn, and you're just like, oh no, they that was you know they 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 really were casting for for something more important here with this one, and she's great. I just I really really like the casting of Control. She is yeah immediately. Goes from like distressed wife to just cold, terrifying. controlled, terrifying. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can tell it's easy to see why the, as you call him, the O Terminator respects control so much. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and like you can immediately see that yes, she's the sort of person who would instruct the O Terminator to like just kill everybody in that room immediately. Yeah. Yeah, so so I did manage to guess that twist, but like only just just ahead of the reveal, which is probably like exactly what you would want. Yeah, and and I didn't I didn't guess that she was control. I was guessing that she was like a vigilance agent or something like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean uh, the the control thing I think is meant to spin out of nowhere, and it's like and it's the whole and it's the reveal that is very fun. Yeah, it, it, it's. This is a, you know, we've gotten references to this character um, and she she appears in the season two finale, like played by like a hand model. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, she she's a fun character just because it's like she is a very intimidating presence from the minute the switch flips. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I just, I love that this was apparently a, an important enough situation that control got involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, they've, they've, I mean, they've lost access to the machine and. I mean, the numbers still come, but yeah, yeah. They, they have, they've, they don't know where it is. Yeah. That like the numbers are still coming, but they don't have, they don't have control over it anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we, at some point, maybe not this episode, at some point in the future, uh, we need to have a, a conversation about the fact that it's called Samaritan. I think I think once we get further along with its plot with the plot line that it is involved with, I think we can have that. But yeah, I think we can safely say to Anna that this is not like a <laughs> one and done. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I mean, we we get what happens that's in the very, next episode. That's very clear. Yeah, you know, in the next episode, um, yeah. which we'll yeah. talk about next. Um, the the thing that I found the wildest is that this not only reveals the existence of Samaritan, but also a bunch of other partly complete machines potentially that like she just like rattle is it is it Control who rattles off the, uh, the list? No, of, it's, no it's, it's it's Claypool who like okay. lists a number. Like there there were but, like there were, list like rattles off a whole list of names of yeah. similar projects. Yeah. I, I think the thing that you're supposed to get is that the government was trying a lot of shit. Um, yeah. And it, they're not necessarily, like, I don't think you're supposed to think that there was like six artificial intelligence programs. Right. Uh, but I, but like the thing we're trying a lot of stuff. Um, and the thing we learned in this is that Arthur was weeks away from what he thought would be the finished thing when all of the projects are canceled except for one that is meant to be a decoy for Congress to find out about. Um, and the, the implication being that, uh, that is that on, um, is that Harold's machine canceled the project. Yeah. Be- because he delivered. One thing that I think is like very cool that we learn in the, the introduction of this episode is that Harold, when, when they were at MIT together, Harold did not believe artificial intelligence was an achievable goal. I have so many questions about this whole yeah. thread that is introduced. So I am sure that this is a consequence of the writers realizing, I don't, not even realizing, but like the writers sort of evolving how they, their, their perception of who Harold is and how they wanted to develop him as a character um, and his backstory. But the arc that they have built for him of how he comes up with the idea of mm-hmm artificial intelligence and his motivation for it has sort of transmuted over time a little bit. And this, I feel like is the the more you get a sense that this version that we get here is the, is the like air quotes canonical one that they want you to believe that he has this idea from childhood planted in his head that is going to sort of take root root uh, and will eventually become the machine and whether or not he actually believes that in college or, mm-hmm. or, and it's just sort of like demurring or whether he genuinely doesn't believe it, it, it could work and surprises himself later on, I think is, is an open question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the, the interesting thing that we really see here is that like, I think Harold believed like 
sufficiently advanced intelligences could be created, but like not what not what the machine is doing in this episode, which there's a lot of things that happen in this episode, like bypassing the phone system when Harold isn't answering to directly deliver Root a number. How? Maybe next episode gives the answer to that, potentially, but like also how? Um, I mean, yeah, the, the, in the next episode, we get an answer to how that happens, which the re and the way that Harold wouldn't be able to detect it is the exact same reason control can't. Right. So I, I think we get a, I think we get an answer to how I think the machine had to figure that out. Yeah. Which is interesting because, but there is in this episode and the next, there are a lot of emotional choices that the machine makes that like, these are things that can only be attributed to the machine having actual emotions. Sentience. Yeah. yeah. I think that there's a term where they, it's AGI, I think is what they call it. it. Artificial general intelligence. I think they start using that term. I think they start using that term in like season four and season five, because that's when it started being used in like yeah. tech papers. Yeah. And they were like, they, they started, they start referring to like, I think there's like a couple times in season four and season five where they refer to the idea of an artificial general intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Because that, that, that term started becoming popular around that time. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's, it's a, a, you're, you're correct in that the, the machine is displaying now that it's free and it's able to, it's truly free of the, of the bindings that were on it. It is behaving in a much more sentient way than it has been in the past. Well, it can update its own code now properly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God, it's been, I mean, imagine how much work it's done on itself in right. the last couple of months. With regard to Harold um, kind of being the Doubting Thomas, I could definitely see him, you know, conceptual, you know, having the conceptual idea of kind of what we think of, you know, the, the AI tools that we have now, Right which are AI, but they're, you know, you have to put in a prompt and it's trained on data and it's mm. not, it's not thinking. It is just like synthesizing based off of a prompt. So I, I think that he could probably like foresee that, but the, the concept of like having an artificial intelligence that can, in fact, that is sapient is just so wild. I, I'm not surprised that he was, I mean, he, mm -hmm. he even seems surprised within the show that that's in fact what he created. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's clear that he doesn't appreciate, I don't know. That's one of the things that's weird about the, the depiction of Harold in the show. Is it, there are times when he seems legitimately bum fuzzled by the machine's capabilities, but then they'll, they'll sometimes be like a peek behind the curtain where he's like, absolutely. I knew what I was doing. Like. I, I feel like it took him interacting with root to, think about like what the machine actually is that he can see a bunch of the different facets of the things it can do but never saw like yeah the whole the whole thing that he created yeah that makes sense and i think i think the part of that is his refusal to anthropomorphize the machine yeah yeah that's which, a really good yeah. which We'll get we'll get into that in the next episode because there's a couple very poignant lines in a particular scene of his refusal to ascribe certain traits to the machine 
limits how he can view it. Yeah, that he he is still kind of in that mindset of like, ultimately, the machine is something that you put a prompt in and you get a response back. <laughs> the, yeah, the prompt being an ongoing look for numbers, yeah. look for connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a thing in my notes here. Uh, when Arthur says to Harold, how can I remember you and not her referring to his wife? And my exact response is, because obviously, Arthur, you and Harold fucked. Uh, and, <laughs> oh, shit, Diane is dead. <laughs> um, like, I, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, I think... I truly believe that it's just like it, it, it's there's there's a bit in, there's a bit in the next episode where it's like oh Harold always had like a gravitational pull with the ladies and I'm just like I truly believe that like Harold uh, God what's his, like Harold Arthur and um, Nathan Nathan like Harold at least fucked both of them it's just I yeah I have to do this um, <laughs> that's valid. Yeah. Uh, we also have two other plots going on in this episode. We have the flashback. Yeah. The- and and we have sad boy uh, <laughs> doing sad boy things. But uh, we but we also have Fosco, who is well, trying yes. to who is who trying is to save being John the from the sad boy. I let's start. Let's do let's do that first. Then yeah. Uh, let's talk about sad boy. I think that John is. I respect that. He's suffered a loss and he's doing, he's, he's doing a grieve, mm-hmm. but, and I, I don't even blame the writers for it because John is such a cliche, like a walking cliche of, uh, military manliness. Yeah. Of course he slinks home to his dad's bar to oh, yeah. drink and sad, but I love that Fusco is the one that goes to get him and that Fusco is just like, you don't even see like you think you're the only one suffering. Just has every moral high ground there, and is completely unafraid of John. Yeah, completely unafraid of him. He's like, you think you can kick my ass? Try it. Like I don't care. Yeah, I I absolutely love Fusco. It like this duology because he really represents like what the actual good the machine can do, and like what yeah, and, and like that their project has worked. And like, and Fusco, it's something that you can like, if you're paying attention in past episodes, you like, like whenever Fusco is on a stakeout, it's club soda. Mm -hmm. And, but it's like, it is a persistent thing of like, Fusco has not, the only time Fusco has been drinking is in flashbacks. Yeah. And it's, I'm curious to know if that's like if that was in the series Bible or something, or just happened to be like a happy coincidence um, that they like. The only time you ever see him like drink like in a bar is like when he's on a stakeout and he's just got he's like sipping club soda because it's it's how you keep a cover, right? But it is, yeah. It's it, it, it it's something that like it's even if it wasn't intentional, it's turned into something meaningful. Yeah, and the fact that like Fusco is like. I have, I have like become a like measurably better person, and like and John makes like the remark that it's like oh you're gonna sl- you're gonna slip back into your old habits or everything now that like once I leave and it's yeah. like you don't ever get that sense because like in this 
we've gone through two and a half years. Fusco has done nothing wrong. Right. As right. wild as that is to say, Fusco has been like, Fusco's been like one of the best people of the cast in terms of like following the rules. Right. Yeah. Cause I think because Fusco is a person who was good and just had a, you know, his life just was in a bad place and didn't have support and help. And so you put people around him that are good and strong morally, so to speak, that can help guide him and he comes out of it better. And you provide support systems for people to extract themselves from the bad situation. I mean, really honestly, this is the yeah. this is the people do not commit crime because they are bad. They commit crime because they are desperate. Yeah, he, he didn't uh I I feel like the 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 Crowley quote fits him pretty well that he didn't fall so much as saunter vaguely downwards. Yeah. <laughs> really what this show is doing is indicting not just all police as crooked fundamentally uh, more or less but also the prison system is what we're saying. I mean well and and, and the and, and also like you know I mean it, it's it's a thing of like I mean, crime happens because our society like a cap- uh, the capitalist society we live in lead people to desperation or the desire to exploit others. And that is how, that is what most crimes stems from. I love that this show is like, I don't <laughs> want to say accidentally very progressive in its condemnation of capitalism and police. I mean, it's it, it, what I think it does. It's is intentional, it, it, but in the it's sense frank. that it's Yeah. Yeah. It's not trying to make a point. It's just like, this is just how the world works. Motherfuckers. I'm not trying to yeah. win it. I'm not trying to win any hearts and minds here. This is just, the world is just fucking like this. Yeah. I mean, like, in the reality... We'll like, talk, it's, it's like, very clear... It's it's very clear that, like, cops are either, like, dirty, you know, horrible bastards, or dead. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's mentioned in the next episode that, like, Harold says that, like, in reality, the machine doesn't actually change anything. It just shuffles the deck a little bit. The idea of it that, like, in reality, building an artificial intelligence to detect acts of terrorism is functionally useless to most members of society. Yeah. I mean, it, it, part of it is that, like, this is, I, this is obviously, it's a science fiction concept applied to a, a world where, like, you know, oh, hey, the intelligence community exists and ignored the one big threat that we've had in the last 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about I Know That Face for, I will, for we'll, we'll, we'll do, we'll do control for this one. We could do Saul Rubinek for the next one. <laughs> um, All right. So Cameron Mannheim, who plays, um, who plays control, um, she will be a returning character. Big surprise there, <laughs> but has the fascinating distinction of being, I think, if there are other people, I would be fascinated to see them to be in the first season of Law and Order and the most recent. Really? So she is in the 12th episode of Law and Order playing a character named Layla, and now she is playing the lieutenant on Law and Order. Like the, like the lieutenant who's like the senior officer advi- like supervising the detectives. But not the same character? Not the same character. Uh, she is playing. Well, I, mean, I mean, it's been like it's been like you know seventy five years in between, right? Yeah, fucking. It's been law and order. Thirty one years. Is... Thirty one years between these. Um, 
She she has played five different characters of Law and Order. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> you are lying to me right now. So in season one, episode 12, she played Layla in the episode Life Chase. In season three, episode 22, Benevolence, she played a character named Martha Rollins. In season four, episode 24, 20 plays of Nurture, she played Beatrice Hines. And for seasons 21 and 22, she's played Lieutenant Kate Dixon. Uh, she's also played Kate Dixon on Law & Order SVU and Law & Order Organized Crime. <laughs> I, as, this is, wow. That is the wildest thing. I, wow. Five characters. Wow. Law and Order, like, and, and, and between she, those. Truly, she is Law and Order's Jeffrey Combs. Um, <laughs> between, between her fourth appearance, her, her third appearance and her fourth appearance. Uh, so, no, sorry, she played four different characters, four different characters. Um, between her third and fourth appearances, 28 years passed. <laughs> 1994 to 2022. Wow. I mean, there are the the things that have the things that have a shorter lifespan than that. Twitter, Google. <laughs> Christ. Wow. Uh, wow. Wow. Um uh, she also, she like also, uh, she played um, a lieutenant in Stumptown, which is like secretly like one of one of my comfort watches because uh, it was Kobe Smulders playing a, a private eye in Portland with a classic rock soundtrack. It was very good. It, one season <laughs> wonder. Okay, do we want to move on? Let's move on to the second episode. We're gonna go long on this one. But, yeah, I think yeah. that there's a lot of stuff that we've kind of like danced around, but we can talk about it properly once once we are in yeah. the second episode. Well, let's take uh, us away. Yeah, so I've got this one, Alethea, written by Lucas O'Connor and directed by Richard J. Lewis. So we pick up the plot following the cliffhanger in the last episode. Harold, Shaw, and Arthur are all being held at gunpoint by Control and her goons. Things seem dire, especially with John currently in a jail cell in Colorado with Fosco. But Root bursts in with guns blazing, allowing Shaw and the others to escape. Root, however, is shot by Hirsch, and they are forced to leave her behind. Uh, now that they're free, Harold and Shaw work with Arthur to find the hidden drives, which are in a safe deposit box under the name of Rudiger Smoot. As Harold and this. Arthur... <laughs> I, it's not a particularly important plot point, but I really wanted to say that name. Yeah. As Harold and Arthur enter the bank vault, Shaw alerts them to the arrival of not only uh, Collier and Vigilance, but also Hirsch and SWAT. Um, so, Neo Terminator. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Harold Lux, If we're going to call him that, we have to be consistent. Okay. I, I mean, we within a single Hirsch, episode. But I, I, I will call him Neo Terminator in summaries. Honest, like, I want to be correct, damn it. <laughs> it's good to be precise. So Harold locks himself, Arthur, and a now kneecapped bank employee in the vault. Arthur opens a safe deposit box and removes the Samaritan drives, as well as a handwritten note, which reminds him that actually he had solved the problems with Samaritan and it works. It's a true AI. As Collier prepares to blow open the vault door, Harold convinces Arthur to destroy the drives to prevent them from falling into the wrong hands. 
Meanwhile, Shaw creates an exit route to the sewers with a pipe bomb, and she moves in once Collier blows the vault, rescuing Harold and Arthur. Hirsch storms the bank, but Collier and a few remaining goons quarter our team. Uh, before he can kill Shaw and Harold and flee with Arthur in tow, however, two SWAT officers appear and uh, open fire on vigilance. Collier manages to escape as the SWAT officers reveal their identities. And now is a perfect time to rewind the summary and catch up with Fosco and John, who are being held in a jail cell in Colorado. Fusco tries to convince John to return to New York. Um, John refuses. Fusco points out that he hasn't heard from Harold in a while, and maybe, maybe, maybe John should be worried about that because maybe, maybe Harold's in trouble. This appears to get through to John because he and Fusco are, in fact, the two SWAT officers who rescue the rest of the team, and everybody escapes through the sewers. When in doubt, threaten John's boyfriend. Yep. Throughout all this, Root has been held captive by Control, who first tortures her by alternating injections of barbiturates and amphetamines, and then moves on to surgery, which deafens Root in her right ear. She reveals to Control that she doesn't simply have admin access to the machine, but is the machine's interface with the world. Further, she reveals that the machine has been in contact with her the whole time, using Morse code in high-pitched tones that Control can't hear because she's old. The machine disables the guards somehow, unclear, uh, while Root uses the knife that she pickpocketed from Control during her surgery to escape, and relays a message to Control from the machine, telling her to leave the machine's agents alone. In the epilogue, Arthur is situated in John's recently vacated hospital bed as Harold receives a call from Root, who reveals that the real Samaritan drives are actually intact and now in the wrong hands, having been swapped by somebody posing as the bank employee in the vault. We in the audience learned that said employee is, in fact, an agent of Uncle Nolan, who, uh, and she is then murdered for her trouble. Root also speaks to Arthur, and the machine gives him a gift, showing images from Arthur's life on the TV by his bedside. John explains that he only returned to protect Harold and that he is leaving the team as he no longer trusts the machine. If all this plot was not enough, we also have more flashbacks for young Harold as he prepares his father to move into an assisted living center and continues to work on electronics projects. After overtaxing his computer and setting it on fire, the smoke is supposed to stay inside the machine, Harold. The smoke <laughs> is what makes it work. It, it has to stay inside, not outside. Yeah. Oh, so that's how you get the smoke monster from Lost. <laughs> As insinuated in an earlier episode, Harold hacks into ARPANET for additional power. In the final flashback, he visits his father, who no longer recognizes him, before he flees the authorities and leaves his identity behind. There's a lot in this episode. It's even more than the last one. Mm. Yeah. I So one thing I love is the... In the flashbacks, Harold using a freak box. Yes. Which is, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's very cool. Um, well, he doesn't use a freak. Uh, uh, I'm going to correct you yes, gently please. here. It's not a freak box. He's using a Captain Crunch whistle. Okay, but it's the, the idea is that it is. Yes, by blowing specific tones with the whistle. This is, the, this is what all f- later freak boxes would yeah. simulate. But in the old style of phones, certain tones opened up trunks in the phone lines, which allowed you to make calls for free. And this was accomplished originally by a guy who went by the name Captain Crunch using these little whistles. Eventually, people would build boxes 
that would generate these tones, and they got that name freaking boxes. So if 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 you build in this box that can simulate a lot of the tones and these open trunks, would it be sort of like a grand trunk? <laughs> and Jude doesn't get this at all. <laughs> I'm just I'm doing this just for Anna. Um, Read Discworld, Jude. I, I'm like I'm gonna like text Aaron of like I made hey Aaron I made a Discworld joke on. Zathos approves. Uh, before we get too much further, I actually want to talk about the titles of these episodes. Oh yeah, because I think it's really interesting. Uh, both of them are Greek, uh, and specifically, they are references to Greek mythology. Lath is a reference to, uh, well, so in classical Greek, the word, I'm taking this just off Wikipedia, so don't hang me, Attic Greek scholars, uh, means oblivion, forgetfulness, or concealment, uh, and is related to the word for truth, aletheia. Uh, the river, in, uh, the, in Greek mythology, uh, Leith was, uh, a river, right? It's a river that flowed around the cave of Hypnos and throughout the underworld where all those who drank from it experienced complete forgetfulness. How about that? Yeah. I thought that was cool. Uh, Aletheia also has some interesting history with regards to Martin Heidegger, but I don't think anybody here cares about Heidegger but me. So we'll move on. I thought that was dope that these episodes are linked in title as well as in theme. Yeah. There's, man, there's so much in this episode that is fucking crazy. Can we talk about Fusco first, actually? Yes. Yeah, let's how Fusco let's talk is about how, like a champ. Yeah. John is being such a dick to him, and Fusco's just like. What an episode with the two of them, because, like, I love just how absolutely disgusted Fusco is with John. Yeah, uh, because John John is like, well, you're once a dirty cop, always a dirty cop. You're just gonna, you know, it's only a matter of time before you go back to your nasty old ways. And Fosco is just like, fuck you, yeah. like fuck yeah. you for thinking so little of me. Um, yeah. and it's like, great. John is like trying to just push Fosco away, and he's just like yeah. trying to push all of these buttons. He's just like free firing, and Fosco's like, no, you shit. I'm better than this. Right, yeah. right. It's really fantastic to watch Fus just to see how much Fusco has grown as a character. Yeah. It's terrific character development. I'm like, I, it's it's one of those things where it's like, Fusco goes from like a character who like, not great to like, a character I would like want to work with. Like, I think out of, I think out of like all of the people <laughs> on the show, like, Fusco might be the only one who's a good coworker. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I hate that. I kind of hate that. I think Fusco might be my favorite at this point. Like, I, I mean, like in a, you, like if, not entirely, but like also kind of yeah. I think like if you turn off my like, I th- like I don't think he's the like my favorite character. He's the best character, but like if I turn down like the horny, um, like. <laughs> He's the one I like the most. Like he, like, yeah. or like, or like, I like as a person the most. And he's, like, he's I out mean, there, obviously, like, yeah, like getting falafel and you know, yeah. And, who would who would you trust to go out to get a to go out and get falafel at one a.m. with and not end up in a gunfight 
the Bahamas or committing a crime that you would be left to hold the holding the bag with. Yeah. Yeah. It's just Fusco. I mean, bear, but (laughs) bear can't, you can't take bear into a falafel into some falafel joints. Okay. Yeah. But I'm like, that's what you do food truck for. Well, if he's wearing his vest, you can. (laughs) Oh, fair enough. There you go. Okay. So bear and Fusco tied for one and two. Yeah. Tied for number one. I, love that like the thing that gets john back is worry about harold yeah the like scooby-doo-esque reveal of fusco and john (laughs) from underneath the swat yeah is such clown shoes of a moment that i don't even care how dumb it is Uh, yeah i'm honestly surprised that like shaw did not shoot either of them (laughs) he deserved it john should have been shot he deserved it (laughs) yeah I have no idea how they managed to get there from Colorado, but like, who cares? We'll just brush that under the rug. It's fine. I just assume. I just assume yeah. that John has like he he still has like his Sentinel card or whatever that Harold gave him. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think, is there anything like specific to John or John or Fusca that I want to talk about in this one? Like, um, we get we get more Fusco Shaw antagonism, which is delightful. I love the two of yeah. them. They have they have such great chemistry together. Yeah. It's really just like Yeah, it's no, a very specific the, sort of chemistry. It's like it's it's the unlikely animal friendships uh, yeah. of genre of stuff. It really is. It's like It's like a hedgehog and a lion. <laughs> Yeah. I was gonna say like yeah, it's like a highly poisonous reptile and a pit bull. I like mine better, but I get where you're coming from. Oh, and I I do think that in a lesser show, I I, I think the the idea that like John gets to leave, and like this is like he it's never presented as him making the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. I think that is something that like a lesser show might have tried to dodge. Um, like he like he's gonna go off and do his own thing to properly try to process this. And I, I do enjoy that for the character of like, yeah, sometimes I think that like grief is a one or two episode thing that is processed. John is going to deal with it, but it's like he it, it's not a it's not presented as a magical lesson he has to learn. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he has to right. deal with the shit. He has to deal with the shit and he just has to go about it. And like he's obviously going about it in like an unhealthy way, but yeah, yeah. I do I do like the the aspects that you're pointing out. I I'm not a huge fan of the like John goes off and like drinks his feelings um because it it lends it lends some more freezer burnt flavor. Right? I I I think it's the whole thing At least of to just me. like he's doing the thing that he that he thinks he should do or the the way that he thinks that he has to process pain. Yeah, but like just because that's such a like stereotypical yeah. like you know yeah. machismo reaction to but you I, know, I think the thing that like lost. subverts yeah. it though is that like the thing that like helps him and starts it is Fusco dragging him back and it's like we're no yeah, yeah I I think that's important of like the choice to leave isn't the thing that's presented as the bad thing it's the unhealthy self-damaging actions that he takes yeah presented in the narrative as the the unhealthy thing yeah that's valid 
if we're done talking about John and Fusco, uh, I think the, to me, the part of this episode that has always stood out as the most compelling part is the interactions between Root and, and Control. Um, I'm going to oh, say, yeah. I absolutely, like, I have to skip the, I had to, like, I've seen him before, I know how it goes. I have to skip the surgery thing. It's so, yeah. it's so intense that I'm just like, no, I cannot. It, it, it flips the same switch in my brain that horror movies do. Yeah. No, I get that. Control is very scary in that scene. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know that she's about to go for the other one, right? Like she's, she's entirely willing to completely deafen Root. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like the, what, what I want to kind of talk about with this is you have two true believers mm-hmm. here running headfirst into each other. The problem is that Control's beliefs mean that she has a total misapprehension of what the machine is and what can, and what root is. I mean, cause the way that, and it puts her at a distinct disadvantage. Yeah. The, yeah. The way that control is ap- approaching it is from the perspective of a member of the security apparatus who has a, has a tool with which they can spy on the public um, like yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but it's just like it's obviously we have to have it because we need to protect Americans from everything, and we don't need a remit or there's no, yeah. there's nothing yeah. that you can tell me that is like a valid reason to deny me this. I yeah. also don't think that control believes that the machine is sapient. No, because yeah, there's no, no there's yeah. no reason. I there's no real reason for her to believe that. Right. Right. So so she's operating from the belief that it's a just a regular old supercomputer that Harold has hidden and yeah. that Root has admin access to. And all she needs is to get the, you know, admin username and password from Root and like Which everything is, will be great. It's so silly. Like give me the username and password as if the machine has a username and password anymore. Like as if the idea that like there's a place to log into the machine anymore. Yeah. It's bizarre to con- to consider that that it's such a mundane thing to be trying to extract from root and i love that root is willing to sit there and has such total faith in the machine's plans yeah that she knows that you know she'll get out of this and she'll figure it out and and root never breaks like she reveals information but she reveals the information when at a point where She's determined it's it is time to reveal the information. It's like once she's, mm-hmm. you know, she she is manipulating control even as she's being tortured. Yeah. And I'll I'll throw you a non-spoiler spoiler here. The surgery on her ear, the deafening on one side, is not something that they just forget in two episodes. Mm. Yeah. That's good to know. It's a very and, interesting... And, yeah, and that's interesting because now we have two disabled characters on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way they handle it is really interesting, but there, there will be, so there's, it'll be an interesting discussion and I, 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 it'll be an interesting discussion, but I will say that there are, there are multiple times where Root will be like, can you walk on the other side of me? I'm deaf on this side. Like mm-hmm. it will consistently come up that like she has this disability yeah. that she can't hear on this side. 
but there's other stuff going on there too. And she can't even use something like bone conducting headphones because yeah, the that doesn't work for her. That yeah, yeah. But yeah, I one of my favorite things is at the end of is at the end of this where the machine is speaking through root and yeah, and, and like you yeah. know, saying like it's like the only thing you love is at this address. And God, that's terrifying. And, yeah. And, yeah. And there is no threat there. It is. And I keep it safe and I keep you safe. And yeah, you know, yeah. it is so like, yeah, you're expecting it to be like the only thing you love is at this address. Don't make us do something. Yeah. But it's not. It's the machine saying, I know everything. I protect everyone, including you and this thing you hold precious. Nothing is beyond me. Don't underestimate me. And doesn't say anything because we'll know that like whether whether the intention is to make control believe and I can hurt that or and I am going to keep it safe forever. Control is more likely to interpret that as the first. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, because she I don't think she can conceptualize what the machine is or what it is becoming because I don't think I think there are like three people in the series right now who can conceptualize what the machine is coming becoming and those are Arthur, Harold, and Root like those are really the only people who understand really what is happening what the machine represents the idea of it even is so threatening that it's enough to make control back down Um, yeah and then when she stops, Root asks her, "Isn't she wonderful?" I oh yeah, it's, I love that moment. The way her face just transfigures with like religious ecstasy, yeah, is God. She's so good. I because like how many just how, you know. How often do you get to be the voice of God, right? Yeah. I mean, it's Amy Acker and like probably like the the actress in Hollywood who has the most experience playing uh women <laughs> who are figures who who are possessed or speaking for ungodly powers. <laughs> it's she's she's I amazing. Mean, yes, absolutely. But it's it is such a that performance there of torture and being tortured and zealous zealousness and rapture all in one episode is so good i it's a sin that more people do do not appreciate how good she is in this episode or in this show and it's it's interesting too because the at least for me watching it, and maybe it's because, you know, we've been having all the discussions about the show, et cetera, et cetera. But at least for me watching it, you know, I, I was concerned that Root would die in this episode, but I was never concerned that she would break <laughs> because she she is a true believer. And like, yeah. I ab- like between the writing, the performance and everything, like I absolutely believed that Root would die before she gave up, you yeah. know. That's access a really, to the machine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I totally get that. You know, that was never like I was worried that control would just like kill her. <laughs> yeah, but I never, th- I, I, you know, had complete confidence that she would not, that she would not break. 
and I, I sort of want to kind of transition this to the more general discussion of the machine with our A plot here. Yeah. That I haven't even touched the A plot. Yeah, gosh. I <laughs> we're gonna go super long on this one, but like who knows? This is probably gonna be like your Christmas or New Year's episode, so enjoy it while you're in an airport hell. I don't know when these <laughs> I, I, I don't know where exactly these are coming out, but you know, enjoy. You're getting a long one. When Arthur starts describing the final like the process of making Samaritan, mm-hmm. he does basically exactly what Harold did, except in the f- except her- except Arthur recognizes exactly what he has created, and he recognizes what he has done, and Im- yeah, and immediately pers- and has a complete moral understanding of what he has created, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, well, the methods they use are different too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samaritan. Now, correct me if I'm mistaken, but the machine wipes itself completely at the end of every day mm-hmm. and resets back to once Harold got it up to that state by using these kill offs, mm-hmm. it wipes itself. Whereas Samaritan, he just instituted like a flat destruction rate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That just is there built in. Uh, to get was there built in to get it across that line, which is not something that the machine had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that is, I think that is something that needs to that should be kind of kept in the back of your head as when you think about the differences between the machine and Samaritan. That Samaritan's like fundamental. The way that Samaritan climbed into sentience was this extraordinarily ruthless survival mechanism. Yeah. And at least at this point, I feel like um, it's not clear that Samaritan has been trained on anything. Mm-hmm. No, that like it's a the, the, the like kernel is there, but it has yeah. not been trained on any data, which yeah will become relevant. Yeah, <laughs> because you know that that makes it you know a uncle Uncle Nolan is going to train it on something. I know I know he has an actual name. We haven't learned it yet. So, you know, he's yeah. Uncle Nolan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the way he says like the way he says it, my Samaritan, you are destined for great things. He's so creepy. Oh, I, I love yeah, it. No, yeah. He's just so like he he drips he drips a menace in the way that only like British like British men of the same age can. Yeah, there's no other way to put it. It's yeah. But one of my favorite one of my favorite scenes in this episode is when Harold and Arthur are in the are in the vault and Harold is trying to convince Arthur to destroy Samaritan to prevent it from being misused and reveals that the that he created the machine. And Arthur's first question is your machine, is it wonderful? And he says, wonderful, yes, and terrible. Um, and then the, the, the yeah. couple lines later, Arthur tells him, your child is a dancing star. And Harold insists that it's not my child, it's machine. And 
Arthur says with such conviction, it's a false dichotomy. It's all electricity. And yeah. And Saul mm-hmm. Rubinek just sells it perfectly too. Yeah. It's that, it's that sort of thing where it's so, where it's clear that Arthur compared to Harold is somebody who has considered what he has created, not just on an intellectual or moral level, but on a spiritual level. Yeah. Which I, I, I yeah. think is something that it's like, you know, it's, he is cons- like, he, he isn't thinking about like, you know, what is this capable of? But he's like, what is this thing I've created here? And the, I and the idea that like he, that, it's a child to him is he has reached like he is, I think through, I think where Harold refuses to have a dialogue about what he has made with the machine. It's something that Saul has like meditated on and negotiated with. I I mean, it's, it's religious. It's religious in a way that Harold, I don't think is capable of. Yeah, I think it's religious in the in the way that having a kid is religious in the sense that it's it is a grappling with mortality and with life in a really fundamental way and he's chosen to extend his Samar- to Samaritan that same status in a way that Harold never w- at this point has mm-hmm. not. It it really raises a fascinating question of like what could what could he have done with Samaritan if offered the chance and and you bring up a good point there jude which is that throughout all of this arthur is dying yeah arthur will be mentioned throughout the series and i think it's assumed that he passes off screen um because he doesn't they uh they he doesn't appear on the rest of the series um but he's he's referenced and the like but yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's a really like i mean there's a lot of stuff in this episode like my late grandfather was a computer was one of the like first generation of computer programmers. He worked on the first supercomputer and during later in his life, he was a lot like Arthur. And so this episode really always hits really hard for me just because there's a Mm -hmm. lot of things that feel familiar. I, it's one of those things where it's like, I wish there had been like, or I would love to see like scholarly work on like, you know, what, what the machine represents and how the AI is presented to this and how the, how it's personified. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also just love that. Like the lore is that like Harold is popular with the ladies. I said it before, but it's fun. <laughs> it's so dumb, but yes, it's yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'm like, there's, there's a, like a lot of like very like nice moments in this episode where it's like the, the, the history between, Arthur and Harold gets referenced in like, like that they've stolen a car before they apparently like did something to like a scoreboard at the Harvard Yale game as part of an <laughs> anti-nuclear proliferation uh, like protest and that they made Rudiger Smoot as the <laughs> <laughs> How, like, can you create a fake identity with the most bogus name ever? Yeah, good enough yeah. Good enough to be able to, like, make a bank account. Yeah. I also, this episode, 
Um, this episode actually names the Manhattan Project, too. Oh, uh-huh, yeah. Which, you know, I feel like that's been kind of a long time coming because there's definite parallels there. Yeah. I there is there is an interesting like dichotomy whereas the Manhattan Project was a huge effort by I mean not just the American scientific community but like also American industry. Yeah. There are some really good books on like what it took to create uh like to to get raw materials because we had no idea how to make a nuclear bomb. Um, yeah, I really I, I personally really like the girls of Atomic City for like an idea of like the actual industrial scale we had to go through to like, you know, make refined materials for an atomic bomb. But instead of instead of like one unified government project, there is like there was the NSA project with Samaritan and this private venture done by God, what, IFT. Um, which mm-hmm. was Harold and uh, Nathan's Harold and Nathan's Nathan. company. Um, it was like, why am I doing this? Um, but uh, <laughs> like, and, and you know, and maybe with others as well, there wasn't a unified project. It was instead right. like sparsed out, which I maybe it like also represents a little bit that there, that, you know, the intelligentsia is a lot less. Uh, and like those people are a lot more spread out instead of like the, the U S government just putting everybody in a room and saying, figure it out. Right. <laughs> Which I just find like interesting, uh, of like that, that difference between those. Yeah. I'm so like the, the whole machine Samaritan thing, it's going to become such a, I mean, it's huge, but like, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I really think that like the plot of Samaritan it's so helped by the fact that like these two episodes are so good. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's just a really good yeah. two parter. It's an, it's an incredible launching point for this arc yeah. or thread or however you want to put yeah. it. Do we want to talk about some of the funny stuff from the episode? Yes, please. So the, the thing that made me absolutely crack up is that uh, when, when Harold says, that Shaw is a hammer and John is a scalpel. And I'm just like, what universe do you live in, Harold? If, this you, is your... if you ever needed evidence how romantically enamored Harold is with John, it is this quote. Because it's like you're talking about the man who's who whose signature move is to ram something with a garbage truck and and the man or, who has or he, to stand in the middle of a road and fire a grenade through the windshield of a car and he even has a music track for that specific thing yeah. that recurs frequently i i like the only the only like i'm like what is your dividing line between hammer and scalpel is it uses illegal russian chemical weapons because that's the only line that like Shaw crosses that John does not. And I mean, yeah. like let's let's be real. John's probably done that. Yeah, he don't, he's yeah. probably like he's like I'm out of I'm out of the I'm out of the nerve gas game. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I when <sighs> when Anna was watching this episode, I think my comment was, uh, Shaw is if. If uh, John is a hammer, then Shaw is a, you know, slightly less 
or no, if Shaw's if Shaw is a hammer, then John is a slightly more masculine hammer. Like that's the only <laughs> yeah. difference. Yeah. And then later in the episode, Shaw's like, "Yeah, so we're gonna set off a bomb to escape through the sewers." And Harold's like, "This doesn't seem very subtle." And then Shaw's just like, "Well, it's hammer time." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I have been sneaking around. We have to have an explosion. It's mandated. Yep. Yeah. And the the other thing is, John needs to stop misgendering the machine. I I think this is the... That bothered me. I think this is the thing where... Harold does it, too. I mean, yeah. I think it's it's a thing of only Root does... Only Root genders the machine. And... But no, 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 no. John refers to the machine as he. Oh, I, I... Uh, yeah, I In, didn't catch that. Yeah, I yeah, I, and that's why I was like, mm, mm. when when talking about like when he's talking about how he doesn't trust the machine anymore. Mm. Maybe I need to rewatch it, but but I'm almost positive that uh, John refers to the machine as he. I only catch it's, but that I think that, like typically I uh, prescribe it to like the lack of ability or conceptualization to ascribe personhood to it. Or I don't say personhood because it's not, I don't want to yeah. anthropomorphize the machine, but sapience. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, sapience is a good Yeah. Cause I, I, yeah. I don't think anthropomorphizing the machine is really the way to put it because I don't, I don't think the series engage like anthropomorphizes the machine. It doesn't try to humanize it. It's yeah. It, it's not a person. It's an intelligence. Yeah. Which is a thing we will get into at some point. Um, <laughs> there's there, there's it's like all this list of topics of like we're gonna have a 20 minute conversation about this at some point yeah <sighs> oh man such a such a good couple of episodes i don't even and i'm assuming that this one explains how root was able to get the message from the machine that just harold can't hear the super high pitches yeah, either no it's it's old yeah. people think um a couple years before this, when I was in high school, this when the, when the idea of that first started coming out, there would be kids who would have like that pitch of ringtone, so they could know that they were getting text messages in class with while not getting like not alerting a teacher, um, and it was really fucking annoying. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there there was also I don't know whether this is still a thing, but for a while. Like, it was pretty popular in areas where I was to have it, like, have that tone, like, just played on the mall speakers and stuff like that and, like, outside of stores. Oh, God, really? Yeah, to, to like, prevent kids from, like, loitering outside the dollar store. Oh, that's... That's, like, the things... That's, like, the thing that they sell at the hardware store to keep deer off your yard... Out of your yard. <laughs> That's dumb. Because it was like this was like the the thing where like you know the the you know terrible teens were just you know loitering around the mall. Uh. So that tone was like weaponized. <laughs> okay, we got anything else we want to talk about with this one? I I would also like to note that that tone is basically the exact same tone as my tinnitus, and yeah, please pity me. <laughs> that sucks. Because <laughs> I hear I hear that tone. Just every minute of my life. Yeah. I, I, I completely, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a mood, right, Justin? Yeah. I, I like, yeah, my entire life. All right. Um, do I have any last things? 
No, I don't. Um, we got we got two fun ones coming up. Or you were gonna. We've got two fun ones next. We've got four C next, which might be one of my like one of my favorite like random. Wait, one-offs. wait, wait. Is that is that spelled like within with letters or with like the number four and then the letter number C? Number four, letter C. It's not a C four. Why? Um, no. Is it trying to be cute? No. No, you're going to figure no. out what it is it very is, okay. easily. It is extraordinarily okay. literal. Okay, but also trying to be cute. No, it's not. It's not really. It's not cute at all. It's 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 extraordinarily yeah. literal. All right. Um, all right. Yeah, you'll, you'll get. So, yeah, we're going to cover episodes 13 and 14 on our next episode, which are 4C and Provenance, uh, which is another fun one. Yeah, it's a good it's a good pair of episodes. Yeah. These are they they're not number like they're they're not particularly like these are these are sort of like it's a breathing space. That's what the, it is. It takes it's a it's a breathe yeah, it's breathing space after a stack yeah. of banger yeah. we, we've had, uh, plot we've had episodes. Five it, t- heavy, it takes a we've second. We've had five like really heavy episodes in a row. Yeah. Well the show has basically turned its corner into from one era of the show into another at like F1 full speed wheels burning rubber speed. And now it's taking time to like shift gears and give you a second to breathe before it starts laying into the plot that it is just, you know, starting to unfold the plot that it has just laid the architecture for. All right. Well, this has been, this has been a very, like a very heavy episode and it's going to, it's got a little long, but we're going to kill it now. Until next time, you are being watched. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license. (laughs) 